I like to dress provocatively in uh, rubber and uh, spikes. Yeah, we just have, it's a pretty outrageous, noisy show. Welcome, you're listening to the Town Sounds Oral History Podcast, and this episode is entitled Punk, Chaos and Experimental, a Kirkley's History of Musical Rebellion. It was John Kipling that opened this episode up. Rebellion is one of the many artistic personalities of Kirkley's and has been for some time. In fact, it could be argued that much of the music that is made here in Kirkley's has a rebellious streak. This podcast series has predominantly focused on amateur and independent music scenes, competition brass bands, volunteer choral societies, not-for-profit orchestras, grassroots music venues, folk sessions, young rock bands, steel pan bands, etc. This music, in a way, all has the spirit of rebellion within it. It's music despite hardship, despite having a lack of money or time, despite not having the right instrument or the most prestigious training, these are determined musicians standing in the face of what we as a society deem popular or successful, or in some cases, possible. The musicians and musical facilitators featured in this episode have taken that spirit of rugged determination to its conclusion. That which connects my guests today is innovation, experimentalism, chaos and anarchy. We'll start with Ryoko Akama. So when it comes to, like, let's say, composition, I do work performers who studied, you know, proper music, um, came from a conservatoire and stuff. But I'm never interested in staying in front of them and telling them what to do. But I kind of want to work together all the time. So this is like an, a long, high vertical um, way of working. And it was very difficult because it was kind of like, what the hell are you talking about? Just tell me what you want me to do. But I think that's kind of permeated a little bit further. If you want to notice what I've done, it's there, but you don't have to notice because it's a part of the thing anyway. For this episode then, we'll dive into music defined by a rebellious and experimental attitude, from the birth of punk to the most contemporary music available in the area. We'll even hear some brand new instruments that have only been invented recently and are still relatively unknown. My guests today are singer of Laughmad and founder of the Cone Valley Chaos, John Kipling, and the other founders of the Cone Valley Chaos, Tom Taylor, Matthew Phillips and Carl Hodge, punk musician and event organiser, Andrew Turner, editor of Only a Northern Song, Chris Marsden, founder of Ame, and an experimental musician in her own right, Ryoko Akama, performer and co-inventor of Bodycoder, Julia Bakovietz, and technician and co-inventor of Bodycoder, Mark Bakovietz. We'll start how we mean to go on, with something quite random, quite chaotic, and quite experimental. The following sound sample is from Marsden-based Chris Raffoni's Solophones. These are solar-powered instruments that interact with their environment using brilliantly simple mechanics. Invented, built, and recorded in Kirklees, displayed at festivals across the country. Listen to it now, and then go find them hanging from a tree somewhere. We'll start with some history that is quite well known in Kirklees, that the Sex Pistols performed their last ever UK gig 
in Huddersfield at Ivanhoe's nightclub on Christmas Day of 1977, to be precise. This was a blazing fire of a gig, hidden in a smoke screen of mystery, with half the tickets being printed without a venue or date, only a handwritten flyer, and a spluttering of cancellations of other gigs across the tour. It seemed like this gig probably wouldn't happen. By this point, the Sex Pistols were banned from playing almost anywhere in the UK, but Huddersfield had the metal to withstand such an unusual performance. For a while during this era, my first guest, Andy Turner, was working as a paperboy and spending his time in between shifts rummaging through the magazine stands for Enemy, Sounds and Melody Maker. Well, I sort of like the heaviest of that. I gravitated to that. I mean, the stone stuff... I'm jumping Jack Flash. I, I like that four to the floor sort of primitive type rock stuff. It just resonated, I suppose. It's uh, at that time never never even thought about where that'd go. It was just a case of liking something. I don't, I don't even remember watching Top of the Pops as a kid. I'm not sure we had a TV. I vividly remember one day picking a copy of Record Mirror up and there was a cover on there, and uh, this guy just looked sort of out of the world, out of this world, it was like... It was John Lydon, so I don't know whether it was one of the first Sex Pistols covers that they'd ever had, so that would have been around 1976. And I, I just like, wow, we're going to find out more about this, but there were no no records out at that point, and I did hear that, Anarchy in the UK, when that came out, and probably knew Rose by the Damned, but I didn't start getting to a point where I could actually go out and spend my own paper money. So what I'd do is, Saturday morning, get paid, finish the paper round, get ready and go into town and I think it was Bradley's records but there were also Bostock records that did a load of old ex-jukebox stuff that were really cheap. I'd just go into town with uh, my mates and we'd uh, buy a load of records, go for a sandwich and a coffee and we'd get a bus back home and then play them to death. There was a teacher at school, a guy called Roger Keeley, Red Roger, Socialist Workers' Party. He sort of got us involved in... I think we we tried to do a fanzine. We had no clue how to get this printed or whatever, and he said he'd print it sneakily in the uh, staff common room or whatever, but uh, we had to sell uh, anti-Nazi league badges and, uh, and what, the other Rock Against Racism stuff for him. After listening to punk for a while, Andy's next logical step was to start a band himself. Expozes produced five short releases and travelled across Europe as far as Yugoslavia in a Fiat, packed to the brim with guitars and a drum kit. The band were also friendly with another local anarcho-punk band, The Instigators, from Dewsbury. The two groups would perform gigs together and travel together in an old bread van. Dewsbury, where the bands would practice, was also a great spot for punk, post-punk and goth gigs. Eventually started rehearsing in um, our guitar player's uh, garage. So he had a guitar and then a friend of mine said, I, I can play bass and we went, you can't play bass, mate. And he goes, turns up with a bass. I'm like, right, OK, you're in. Drummer, <laughs> making a right racket in there, playing a load of covers. Just escalated from there, and then we ended up doing this first gig in 1980, I think, at Only Youth Club. And I got loads, a few gigs around town, because back in them days, there were probably only two places you could really safely go. The Albion, and then the Coach House. But then you had to run the risk. You could either go, go, go around the ring road, or you could go through the centre of town. 
If you went through the centre of town, you had to pass where teddy boys went. And these guys were waiting for you at last orders. And they were old enough to be your dad. And they went, leg it down there. We were, we were little kids and they were just waiting at the end of the street. And there were a lot of violence at every gig. There were a lot of angry young, mainly men, but also angry young women around at that time because there were high unemployment. I mean, some people made the best of that and some people just got angry about it, couldn't get a job. Very little money, but it also gave you a lot of time to, um, to do something creative. So there were a lot of sort of squat gigs and, and alternative sort of stuff where it wasn't like pubs or... There were a lot, a lot of bands around because people had a lot of time on their hands. Yeah, quite a lot of gigs. And that, what we did, uh, which leads on to Instigators, and that Flux Pink Indians gig, Instigators was supporting, that was 1982, and that was probably one of their first proper shows. And they were really good, like young kids. We ended up, because uh, at that time there was a lot of tape trading and underground stuff going on, and so we ended up buying an old red van or something. And um, we'd both do gigs together. So you got two bands for the price of one, you know, and it was easy. We got great times, but I mean, you know, you'd be driving, as exposes days, you'd be driving like 100 miles and like chasing a promoter around an estate to get enough money to get back home. And because and of all that anarcho thing, you know, like, stuff like money were frowned upon. Pay no more than nothing to get in and pay no more than nothing to the band, basically. But mm. it was great fun. Met loads of people. The members of Expossess eventually joined Instigators and the focus became about that band. There's things like real life come into play, you know. I mean, and the singer left, so I ended up doing some stuff with them and then the drummer and the bass player left, so we got Andrew Trimble from Exposers on bass and um, Steve Curran on drums and we got their set nailed in about three, four days and then literally out on this tour. And then it just went on and on. And then we went to Europe for the first time in 85. And then on the back of that, there was a six week European tour booked early 86. Another European tour then America in 86. And we did an album, the second album in 86. And then on and on and on until 88. And then things started, real life kicked in again. Then we got some other people in and off on tour again. So that that went on till 92. But I can't even think how many European tours we did, 16, 17. Once we got to Europe, at that time in the UK, if you were on a level like, like we were, it were you turn up, get treated like shit, not get paid. And when I'm talking about not getting paid, I'm not saying we were, you just want enough to be able to get to the next gig. And as soon as we got to Europe, uh, everything were in a better state there. They had a lot of youth centers, a lot of squats. Music there is Full Circle by The Instigators. 
Punk music has many facets which make it punk. Punk, for example, is known for its propulsion of both political and sentimental anarchy. It is known for its musical inclusivity. Anyone can play punk, you don't have to be able to sing or play an instrument. But perhaps its most famous identifier, at least between musicians, is its DIY culture. The legacy of this punk element is arguably even greater than that of the music itself. This is a scene which needs no ruler, no record label, no professionals, no training, no costs, no fees, no audience. Although parts of the scene obviously have all of these things, this punk culture of creation is present in lots of subsequent genres of music. Ryoko Akama to explain more. I'm doing a bit of research on DIY culture and sustainability because I feel a really danger for younger generations to establish or continue the DIY cultural thing that I was deeply kind of sunk into when I was young. Everyone was squatting and you would go to one concert for free and then go to guest list and then go to squat party. You know, everyone's playing and then if you want to play music, you know, you can find a venue for free and then everyone would buy CDs. And so I was actually like, selling handmade CDs. And so that's what everyone was doing, you know, cassettes and and definitely Saturdays and Sundays you'd go like three, four, five places to see different concerts and and I would go up to Leeds or Manchester or see more friends and go to other concerts and and the life is very different. You know, everything is more settled and I think people are more worried about the finance and of course experimental music or underground music scene going people do need sort of edgy situations but then when people ask me do you want to to lead an edgy life again you know without many money and and just like hanging around with just piece of bread in your hand i i also wouldn't think so and in the uk is not the best country to be poor now Ryoko was born in Sendai, a city in Japan northeast of Tokyo on Honshu Island. Half Japanese and half Korean, her hometown was surrounded by rice fields. She has fond memories of chasing fireflies and seeing the native wildlife growing up. She grew up listening to the ubiquitous Japanese pop of the time, though her parents weren't particularly interested in music or the arts. Ryoko moved to the UK in 1995 and lived in numerous areas, including Wales, Lincolnshire and London. She eventually moved and settled in Huddersfield. Upon moving to the UK in 1995, she started composing her own music and subsequently started the community interest company Ame, which specialises in the experimental art, sound art and music scene in the north of England. Because when you see the Beatles, there's always this female figure, Yoko Ono, hanging around at the back. Um, I was intrigued by her. Who is this weird woman? Always got criticised by the world of, you know, like, Western music enthusiasts, that, like, as if, like, she was a witch. And then when I bought some of her music, it was a little bit of extreme that time, and no one liked it. And then I got to know John Cage and the Fluxies and the New York scene and, you know, Lamont Young and some other Japanese improvisation music scene from that time. So... What I was trying to do with Ame when we started was that um, instead of when I came to Huddersfield, 
not many people said, I love Huddersfield. I love being here. But it was like, I love Huddersfield because it's between the Manchester Leeds and Sheffield. And I thought that's just very interesting, you know, like not many said, this is a place. I love Huddersfield. I want everyone to come. But it was like, this is like an, a middle point where I could go everywhere. So it's so convenient. So I wanted people to come to Huddersfield and, and play with me. And because I had an international network, quite a few people who came to mostly London to play in a, in a cafe auto, um, they would contact me to ask if there was any other place to play. And then I would say no. And that changed to, yes, you can come and, and we can do a concert with Dormani. So people started to come and I just gave all of the Dormani to, to the artists. And it was very difficult, I suppose, very difficult because I wasn't brought up here. So I didn't know so many people. I was still in, in the university doing my PhD. This is what I, what I want to do. But creating some sort of underground base for underground music scene, especially targeting art. I mean, there was this term that sound art. So sort of between sound installations and performances. So we'd prefer like flat, white cube kind of gallery space where musicians and artists could work on some sound experiment. And gradually we established that. I mean, interestingly, when, whenever we had concert that Ame generated, we had quite a good number of audiences. We started to work with the council, so we were part of this uh, piazza scheme that um, got a space and then named it Dai Hall. Part of Ryoko's DIY spirit has been in attending and booking grassroots experimental gigs in perhaps unusual settings. Again, this is a sort of rebellious act that flies in the face of the music industry. It's this spirit which resides in our next guest, who, in the 80s, was producing magazines and cassettes for local bands out of the basement of the Samaritan's Centre. Only a Northern Song was a cassette he released named after the Beatles' 1969 recording of the same name. Bands paid £5 and submitted their music to Chris Marsden, who then checked over the material to hear if anything needed re-recording in their home-made recording studio. I didn't really know anyone in Huddersfield. I had the idea of starting a magazine which would engage young people and raise money for a charity, the Samaritans. I just thought they did something important. I could see young people having difficulty in distress. There wasn't really, I suppose, mental health services for young people. A good place to go would be, I thought, the Samaritans, and that meant I got to know people. It was a sort of a polite fanzine um, called Town Beat. I rang the examiners, spoke to their pop columnist, and had a beer with him at lunchtime and told him I wanted to start a magazine. He was very polite to me. But I know he decided that that was the last he was going to see of me, or hear of me. It was never going to happen. But I went down to the Freshers' Fair with a flyer, saying I was organising a meeting in the back room of a local pub. Some musicians in the front room of the Albert heard what was going on and knew of my name, which was a pseudonym, Gris Boojum. Boojum being a, a Lewis Carroll inventions of something terrible. 
at the Freshers' Fair, I was recruiting students to come and be writers on a magazine. No, we were the only magazine at the time. So we would do reviews of, of gigs, we would do interviews. It's what people wrote, I suppose. If people wrote it, we tended to print it. I started, um, I started, uh, I wanted to do, um, record some music at the time. So I proposed a compilation cassette of local bands. And I thought, I'll try and put on everything that comes in without filtering it. A cassette went out, we published a cassette. I charged every band five pounds. I wanted to make it the sound of the town, of the town at the time. If it's material which is worth recording or worth listening to at all, I'll try and get it on. So it becomes a document. I could see it as a, as a permanent thing, I thought. Didn't realize cassettes were gonna last such a short time, but yeah, that was the idea. We ended up doing, setting up a, a studio in a garage in Kirkburton. It was a large double garage. Green Goddess Studios, and we had a mixing desk in the in the back of the house, sort of twenty yards, thirty yards away. And uh, the garage was the recording studio on a on a, over a weekend. But I remember Gentle Eeyore playing his solo piece in the garage, and the garage like going, the corrugated iron structure being uh, um, really shaking. <laughs> yeah. An anarchic, leaderless process might appear to anyone used to the hierarchical structured systems that we predominantly see around us to be a touch chaotic. And yet, as we've heard from our guests so far, the music manages to get recorded and released, gigs, even tours are arranged and accomplished, scenes are built out of dedicated audiences and attendees. In fact, in some ways, this appears to be, on the whole, quite a normal if a little folksy, music outlet. But not so with this next musical collective. <laughs> Cone Valley Chaos is defined by just that. Music from the Cone Valley, founded in humour, technological and musical limitations, and more than a sprinkling of chaos. Even the interview with them was a bit chaotic, which I enjoy, and I hope you do too. I think it gives a good impression of the scene, but I'll start with them saying their names so you at least know who is talking and when, even if you follow little else. Tom Taylor. Matthew Phillips. Carl Hodge. John Kipling. Um, I grew up in a little tributary valley to the to, to Slathway, Crimble, and uh, it was just a really nice place to grow up in amongst the fields and the, you know, playing in streams and climbing trees. Kind of mid-80s, probably when we were about... 15 maybe, sort of during the school holidays we'd mess around and just record things, write stuff within two minutes and record it immediately and just experiment. That was the Pagans anyway. Think of something and record it immediately and then forget about it. Yeah. It was, I, was, I didn't put any more thought into it than that. And we'd be recording things that just came off the top of our heads. There's no pressure and we just did it to amuse ourselves. Not trying to be anything or anybody else, you're just doing that thing. Just you know, and it was literally just because it made us laugh. Yeah, we don't think we did much serious stuff at all, really. A lot of it was dependent on the technology that we had, so... We set the drum machine going for half an hour and recorded <laughs> half a cassette worth of this drum machine. And we just used that one beat over and over again for, <laughs> for like, an entire tape. And we'd, we'd do things like we'd slow it down and speed it up 
or we just play Tupperware over the top of it. You know, it was yeah. just finding ways around those limitations because we didn't have any real equipment. Those limitations. limitations. Yeah. Those limitations give it a unique sound though as well, didn't it? They're massively enabling as well. I think you can have too much technology and too much choice, can't you? Casio V1 is a defining yeah. sound and John trying to play the recorder. Uh, <laughs> just really rich, <coughs> harmonic, distorted noise. Mm. Um, so yeah, we did a lot of noisy stuff. Miss World Chainsaw Massacre has to uh, get in there somewhere. Uh, that was from the first session. And we, we were sort of mixing goth, metal, punk, and then we eventually kind of went a bit more sort of GWF. You kind of went more electronic. Yeah, I guess we did. And it was, again, it was around limitations because you had to create a voice set for this sequencer by manually sampling things and then manually looping them. And I, I picked that up and we started doing silly things with it. Matt, I'm totally self-taught, play the guitar. Not very accomplished. Mm. Couldn't play the instrument. Didn't know anything about pop music. I think we all wanted to be anarchic in different ways. We weren't quite punks. And I think some of what we what we were doing was taking the piss out of anarchy, that mm. idea of uh, of chaos. We thought, oh, that's just stupid, you know, it's silly. It was anarchy, it was genuinely anarchic, but it was also parodic of anarchy. We heard a lot of the stuff that you guys were doing earlier, and we took, because we were younger and precocious, we thought we could do it more crazy than you guys kind of thing so we took some of those elements that were the, the chaotic funny elements and put tempo up full and uh, press one of the auto keys and then let's just go crazy you know and it just happened by accident we were all at Stephen's house our style was we would nearly always just improvise it absolutely so we wouldn't have any thought like what you were saying earlier Tom we would have no thought we thought that would have the best results. When we tried to write stuff, write lyrics, it was good, but the funniest stuff come, came when we just pressed record, I'd get a little riff going on the keyboards. And Jason wasn't, didn't have any musical training, but he had a great musical ear. And he just had this capacity for when we pressed record, he would just come out with this like, consciousness spiel of really creative but kind of surreal silly. and silly serial lyrical mm. content that we just we would then we just play it back and laugh ourselves stupid so it was all just for humor's sake really well it was outrageous yeah. totally outrageously puerile and stupid and surreal yeah and it would often just fold in on itself as well yeah it would we would sort of explode the songs basically we would take them to a point of <laughs> irretrievable <laughs> chaos and then we just blow them up pretty much and that would be the end of the song. All these different uh, branches of the tree, they all came from the seeds that were sown here in the Cone Valley. Is that too good? One last verse. 
That was Stopped in the Zoo by Giblets and Cheese. It sounds like for many years there was almost no way of even listening to most of this music unless John Kipling handed you a mixtape at a pub. Now though, even this chaotic bunch have shined their shoes and put a few of their tracks on Soundcloud. John also plays live with Satan's Willie and Laugh Mad. Laugh Mad have been going since 1990, so deserve a play on this podcast. This is News From Nowhere. Sufficient condition for our survival Into the next millennium Cooperation Instead of competition Now we pull together Instead of pulling it apart Blue sky This unwritten manifesto of bottom-up music-making encourages an artistic form which embeds notions of inclusivity in every note. Music is made experimentally by anyone, regardless of education, for free or very little money, in a DIY fashion, with no boundaries or limitations on genre, and not with the audience at the forefront of the mind. And so, in a kind of Carl Rogersy way, you could call this person-centred music. Music for the benefit of the person making it. Person-centred music, as a title, rings especially true with our next guest's musical output. With Mark and Julie's invention, Body Coder, the person literally is at the centre of the music. Bodycoder is a powerful system of interactive sound making in the form of a bodysuit connected to hardware and software interfaces, live and gestural manipulation of sound to create cybernetic performance artworks. Well, we'll hear a couple of clips from a piece called Etch, which is performed on the Bodycoder system, so you get an idea, and then we'll hear Mark and Julie talking about the system. to say Sam that I actually had a dream that I could do this and I was controlling the a stage production of music quite psychedelic ideas really well we started in 95 working in uh, on a piece of what was called inter- an interactive performance and it was our idea to actually create a performance environment where one performer could control all the elements of the this, this stage music theatre production. And it was designed for a single performer, and that performer would control all the lighting, all the sound events, all the music from sensors that were placed around the stage. So that was at Lawrence Buckley Theatre. That was the premiere in, in 95, I believe, The Navigator. We worked on that, and it was very successful. And then there were lots of wires on the stage. There were hundreds of wires and cables and sensors. And I thought, well, what if we could put all that technology on the body of the performer. So then I researched and thought, well, yeah, if we've got some sensors on the body and some way of transmitting that sensor data to a computer system, let's go for it. And so that, that was the origin of the idea behind the body coding system. Performers were performing to the music. Uh, constantly, mm-hmm. you know, so, so you were at the music's behest, you know. 
and how do you actually kind of bring the music and the making of the music and closer to the body so that so the dancer's not at the behest of but is the originator of the music if you know what I mean so you know there wasn't really anything around and about yeah there wasn't any systems and also there weren't the kind of digital uh, systems that we could hack basically in order to host all the kind of sound files and what have you in order and, and transmission systems so that there was a there could be a technical dialogue between the body and and a computer in essence I tell you it took us three days to rig the stage in the Lawrence Batley theatre and there were thousands of wires and we had quite a number of sponsors uh, who were giving us tech, new technologies that they had that hadn't brought to market for the first time so we were using triggers that were triggering sound but they were also triggering a lighting desk and the desk also had digital facility on it so that we could actually time uh, lighting changes so I have very long lighting evolving lighting changes on the stage but that was I mean Rank Strand hadn't brought that to to the general market yet so uh, they gave us that to play with anyway we ended up with Ben sensors I mean they didn't survive very long again on the body so Mark had to back them with uh, sprung steel so that they they would kind of bend and bend and bend and there are thousands and thousands of times without breaking and so we had to sort of modify them quite extensively so that it would survive the body yes i mean well also got to mention it's it's you've got the sensor technology so if you've got sensors worn in the body but you've got to get that information on the body to either a sound producing device a synthesizer or a sound module or a computer so you've got to actually transmit that information and people like Laurie Anderson are experimenting with things like that, but she was using, she was tethered with a, an umbilical cord mm. which went off into and plugged into various devices. For us also to sort of get away from a kind of a tethered wide system, we developed a radio system. It was very simple at the beginning. We knew that we were sort of pioneering something. So I literally got the transmitter, hacked it, got the receiver, hacked it, and then added the sensors and uh, and transmitted um, uh, radio data, yeah. uh, which was designed for model aircraft, which unfortunately was on the same frequency as the taxi ranks in Huddersfield. <laughs> well, I'd say so, yes. We, I mean, we definitely have a system now that's robust. It's, it's 16 channels, which means you can have up to 16 sensors, bead switches or bend sensors, whatever. Uh, it, it, it works, it, it's tiny, it's now uh, the receiver is literally the size of a, a mobile phone and, and the transmitter as well, the size of a mobile phone, which can be worn. So it's really robust. We, it doesn't need to go any further. We don't need any more channels. Um, the, the, the radio system is, is Wi-Fi, so it's, it's, it's isolated to the computer you're talking to, so you can get no interference. We, we probably would never change that now. We're not pulling off sound files anymore. It's all live. There's a, it's a different hearing, vocalising, uh, gestural skill set. And that skill set has developed over a long period of time. It's not choreography, it's not dance. It's, it's a very internal uh, way of listening and, um, and working with your body. And it's very synesthetic. 
What we've heard in this episode is that in particular cases, music scenes thrive during hard times. Andy told us at the start that in the 70s and 80s, when unemployment was high and poverty was rife, punk defiantly emerged to boldly voice the concerns of a forgotten, jobless generation, in part by putting due blame on the hierarchical structures embedded in society. Now, in 2023, when we're still recovering from a global pandemic, when there's war in Europe, when inflation seems to be on the loose, when the cost of living is at a high point and wages at a low, and when global temperatures are rising, causing troubles all around the world, perhaps now is the time for a musical rebellion to once again take the centre stage in Kirklees. Lightbox by Foxglove Riot. Well, the Kirklees year of music has flown by quickly, and this podcast series is almost over. We hope you've enjoyed these episodes, but whether you have or haven't, we'd love to hear from you. We're keen to get your opinions and feedback on this podcast for future ventures, so please get in contact with your thoughts, hopefully good ones mainly. Contact Let's Go Yorkshire on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Remember, if you missed anything in this podcast and would like to know more, with the description of this episode, you should be able to find all the information that was included. See you for episode 12, coming out in December 2023. This was a Let's Go Yorkshire and Sam H. Song production. The host and producer was Sam Hudson. The podcast has been supported by Kirklees Council, Kirklees Year of Music 2023, and the National Lottery Heritage Fund, Town Sounds explores the musical histories of Kirklees to uncover untold stories through the voices of local people living musical lives. For more information on this podcast, please visit musicinkirklees.co.uk.